Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of EM Insider with me, your host, Crystal Higgins. Joining me today is Allspring's Derek Irwin, who shares his insights into the current investability of China and why, in some cases, he actually thinks valuations are now more favorable and easier to measure. If I think about that period, right, so in the 90s, you know, China was really just getting on the radar screen. In fact, back then I was in investment banking and we did the first um, Chinese IPO, um, I believe ever in the US, it was a power company. Um, and I think at that point it, it was still um, kind of not really on the radar screen, very emerging. Um, and probably there were other markets that were perceived as a, a better opportunity, maybe, you know, particularly like Latin America uh, and whatnot, but, uh, but it was, um, you know, beginning to, to, to rise. And then I remember in, in, you know, by the early 2000s, really even five years later, uh, it was pretty clear that China was going to be, um, you know, a big deal. But even then it was sort of buy what China needs, not what China sells. So, you know, buy the commodities and whatnot. Um, and then I remember having a conversation with um, actually a, a ski manufacturer that I was covering briefly um, in the U.S. Steam, steam, uh, skis, yeah, uh, and uh, and they um, it was K two um, skis, and they they were um, oh skis, skis, yeah, and okay. uh, and they were you know very much a U.S. company, right? Their skis were always red, white, and blue, and uh, made in Washington State, and. Uh, and and I remember talking to the CFO. He said, "We we just can't do it anymore. We have to produce in China." Uh, and so I think they have like they make like ten skis a year in, in, in the U.S. Everything else is in China. Um, and so that was a sense. Okay, now really China's wrapping up. So for the next kind of decade, um, it was really China's decade. And I don't think there were there were points of pessimism. And of course, you always got the you know folks who thought China was a Ponzi scheme. But largely speaking, it was not a huge. Um, a period, I think it was a period of great optimism in China. Um, mm. And then kind of 2010 to 2015 was the first sense of, hey, maybe the um, maybe the story's breaking, right? So the, you know, the, the global trade was slowing. Um, Chinese competitive advantage was, was, you know, from a cost standpoint was diminishing and China had to go through a transition. Um, and uh, it, it certainly took some stimulus from the government to sort of Jumpstart both the real estate and to the degree the consumer market. We had to see the development of kind of maybe 2014 or so, the real sort of emergence of um, the digital economy in China um, with Tencent and Alibaba coming onto the scene before China really was a source of, uh, you know, another sort of uh, source of optimism for emerging market investors. So I would say that period was, you know, the last real transition period um, for China. Uh, and to a degree, we're in that now, right? So um, the digital economy in China is maturing. Um, certainly the manufacturing story is, is certainly matured uh, and, and arguably shrinking. And so we are moving into other structural drivers. And, and of course, we'd love to see the consumer rise up and we probably will over time, um, but it's really more around um, you know, green technology and some of the other areas where the, the Chinese government is focused on. And I think that gaining traction from that and seeing, you know, and, and, and getting confidence around um, that new driver coming into place, 
uh, is going to take a while. And China kind of wandered in the wilderness a little bit in uh, 2010 to 2014 or so. Um, and that we may well be in that period, but we, we then went into a pretty attractive period for Chinese growth and, and, and Chinese equities. Um, and I feel like that's where we are now, um, mm. um, that kind of valley. Because this isn't this isn't the first time uh, this is the first time you've been on the podcast, but it's not the first time that we've you know spoken or met, and we've spoken about China before, and it's interesting. I think one of the things that you mentioned before is that yes, some clients have um, inquired around um, the option of going ex China, but I want to ask you something a point that you've you've raised quite recently about how you're balancing that I suppose the longer term concerns with near-term opportunities and, and and valuations could you go into that into a little bit more detail about that kind of bear you know balancing bearing in mind long-term risks but yeah, I think, give us like, an idea of what you're focusing on what you're keeping an eye on sure sure I, I think right now uh in, investors um really need to balance two things right first um there's no doubt that there's been a very clear capitulation by investors, whether it's overseas fund managers like myself, or even um, onshore you know, fund managers and retail investors in, in China um, with regard to Chinese stocks. And um, that means that a lot of high quality Chinese shares have sold off to, to you know, very compelling valuations. Um, and that's, I think, despite evidence that we're seeing that the Chinese economy um, has troughed or hopefully has troughed. Uh, and may well recover into 2024. And so that's on the one hand. And then the second, of course, as you, as you said, you know, there are some long-term, real long-term drags on growth, whether it's demographics, whether it's um, geopolitics, changes in um, trade patterns around the world. Um, and certainly, even as we see uh, the Chinese cover economy recover, um, it's likely to be a pretty slow process. And, and, and along the way, there'll be fits and starts that are liable to scare investors. So we need to navigate those two things, but I think if we can thread the needle there, um, there's a real opportunity um, to perform well in China uh, over the next 18, 20 months. Mm -hmm. And um, the idea of, would you consider, I suppose, when you say thread the needle, what could you kind of break that down a little bit more? Thread the, what, you know, when it comes to assuaging or comforting assuring investors that there are available opportunities, I suppose. Yeah, I think- um, How do you go about that? <laughs> really two things um, that we've been doing. One is, um, you know, keeping an eye on, on valuation and, and, and having a, a realistic sense about um, what the long-term you know, value or, or value creation opportunity is for a lot of companies um, that is so long. Uh, and I think part and parcel with that is um, really a soup to nuts reevaluation of the fundamental investment case. Right. So I think in 2021, in particular, when we had this sort of regulatory tsunami uh, that came through, and of course since then, as the economy has remained, um, you know, kind of install speed, um, it's very important to take a blank sheet of paper. And look at the, the the companies that you want to follow, whatever they may be in, maybe why we say the internet companies. Um, 
from a, from a fresh perspective. So, okay, here's the investment thesis I had in 2020. Um, it is not just evolved, it has probably changed uh, in, in, in fundamental ways. And you need to understand that. And I think what we've found when we've gone through that exercise um, is that while indeed there have been significant changes uh, at a lot of these companies, um, the value creation opportunity is still there. Uh, and in fact, in many cases, um, it, it, it is, is incredibly strong. Uh, and maybe uh, more focused on um, long-term profitability, long-term return on invested capital um, than these models were in 2021, when I think the overwhelming narrative was growth at any cost. And now we're seeing um, growth, but profitable um, growth. Um, and from our standpoint as fundamental investors, that's pretty interesting. Um, one, because we like profitable growth, and two, that's actually a little easier to value than the sort of growth at any cost thesis that creates bubbles. So you're saying that the valuation process, like the task of valuing, the valuation process is easier now. Well, in some cases. Than it was. That's a wild, incredible generalization <laughs> on my part. But in some cases, right? So if I look at... Let's sit down. Let's sit down. It's okay. We don't we don't mind a, a wild generalization sometimes. It's okay. Um, <laughs> you're talking to the right guy. Now. <laughs> <laughs> um, they can make life easier. They can make a complicated picture a little bit simpler. Can you give me an example of maybe where one of the... Where, how one it has become easier, if, if you could yeah, be. Sure. I think we look at Alibaba. Right? Okay. There's a company that everybody really knows and understands. And I think... Um, you know, back in uh, call it late teens, Alibaba was a story about increasing e-commerce penetration uh, in a wildly competitive market, but large and important market. Um, and so you had to project, you know, how big Alibaba could get in uh, in, in e-commerce, um, <laughs> what its competitors would do, what would happen to pricing, et cetera, et cetera. And, 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 and that's very hard. Meanwhile, uh, Alibaba, as well as companies like Tencent, were the largest venture capital investors in China. Right, so they had this huge portfolio of, at that point, largely unlisted um, uh, companies that they had invested in um, that are very hard to value because you just didn't have any real um, metrics to value them by. And so I think what the market did was they said, "Well, you know, Alibaba is a great e-commerce player. We think it's got great prospects, and we're going to give it a great valuation." Uh, and since they're doing so well there, we're going to give uh, a very optimistic valuation around this then venture capital uh, portfolio of private companies. And, and so valuations became very optimistic in that sense. Now we look at Alibaba in a post-2021 world, um, and that e-commerce business is actually not nearly as, uh, on the surface, not nearly as interesting, right? It's uh, the e-commerce space is pretty heavily penetrated. Uh, we know there's you know, very large, very significant uh, uh, competitors and, uh, and whatnot. Um, and, and so it, it's, it's, it's not as attractive. And I think folks are a little more negative on evaluation. But we look at a company like Alibaba and recognize that the regulatory, some of the regulatory burdens that came about in 2021 have certainly impacted the long-term growth opportunity. But they've also created walls to make it harder for new e-commerce players to come, right? So the landscape of e-commerce players in China now is probably more stable than it was five years ago, but slower growing. That's okay, because 
it makes it easier for me to mm. conservatively value that side of the business. Meanwhile, they've focused on their other businesses like cloud computing, uh, media, you name it, mm. right? Uh, and those have become more mature and now are being spun off into various units that uh, will be and are, as a better disclosure, easier to value. So while you know my maybe my long-term growth uh, assumptions for the e-commerce business in Alibaba have come down, the overall business is um, focused on unlocking value um, and is in many ways more, uh, more manageable to value than it was even five years ago. When it comes to things that you're keeping an eye on, say the, the job market, youth unemployment, the housing, the housing issue, how closely are you watching it and how much of a th- how how concerned are you about these things? Are they being overhyped in the media, not to um not to do down my own, but um, you know, are are these are these calls for concern from your perspective? Um, it's really hard to say. I think that um, you know, I think Surely the Western media um, views the, the housing market in China through the lens of the scars of uh, 2008, right? the global financial crisis, where there was massive leverage in the system. Uh, it sat in the real estate market, the shadow banking system, and it was uh, multiplying that leverage, and it really collapsed like a house of cards. Um, and in China, it, it, it superficially looks the same, right? You've got a lot of leverage. You've got this quote-unquote shadow banking market. Well, isn't Avergrande the most indebted firm in the world or the most indebted property firm in the world? It is, but you don't have the layers upon layers of systematic debt, right? So if Evergrande goes bubble, bust, bust, that's what I was looking for, um, it's very bad. But it's not as clear that it would be the systemic crisis that, say, the Lehman crisis was. And of course, you, at the same time, you have a backstop. Most of the banks there are government owned uh, and they're easier for the government to inject capital in than maybe they were in, in, in the US. So I don't wanna, I don't wanna understate it. I think that the real estate market is call it 25% of Chinese GDP. Uh, it's incredibly important. It is um, fragile uh, and there are pockets of very significant leverage. Um, mm-hmm. And so the risk is, is pretty clear. I just am not sure that it's, um, the same sort of degree that maybe we saw in, in the U.S., for instance, in twenty-eight. Um, um, so much of said, so much of China's growth was fueled by this sort of meteoric explosion in the property sector. Yeah, I think that's the catch, right? A lot, right? Uh, and in a lot of ways. So yeah, um, you know, not only was it uh, a huge contributor to China's GDP growth, but it's now best case scenario flatline, right? So it will no longer, at least in the near term, contribute to GDP growth in any way. It created a wealth effect amongst uh, investors uh, and, and Chinese consumers who own real estate who were then are going out and spending. Um, so it was supporting consumer spending um, mm-hmm. and, and kind of helping that engine and, and arguably uh, you know, supporting animal spirits for investment in general in, in China, although that's a little harder case to make. Um, <clears throat> and so it really was was important. Um, and so not only does it mean that, and of course it was a huge source of revenue for local governments as well. Um, and so those days are probably behind us. 
Um, and it probably does suggest that uh, China is not going back to, you know, high rates of growth anytime soon. And just because that huge engine is now uh, idle, at best idle. Yes, I do. Moving on to say maybe the longer term things that you're interested in. Um, I know that the you've met, you know the China block you've mentioned before, including Asia, Middle East, LATAM. Um, could you talk me a little through about where the opportunities are here and why it's something investors should be looking at? Yeah, sure. Um, I think here's how I look at the world right now, the, the emerging world right now. Brilliant. Give me a, a view very... on how you view the whole world. <laughs> <laughs> it's a small, small area to cover, but here's the emerging market investment case right now um, is really developing into two broad investment opportunities, right? Uh, mm -hmm. The first one is the development of structural growth um, opportunities um, where they can create long-term compounding returns for investments if they continue. That's countries like India, for sure, right? Uh, Mexico is probably among those as we see the nearshoring trend, gaining steam, um, and, and that that uh, that market uh, continuing to grow. Indonesia, from a demographic standpoint, again benefiting from capital moving out of China into Southeast Asian neighbors. Um, there are those who think the GCC, Gulf Community, uh, uh, Saudi, um, is another one. Although I think the jury is still a little bit out on that one. Uh, and then, interestingly, parts of China, right? So the green economy. Um, uh, biologics, um, software, you know, domestic-oriented sectors um, that should be pretty well create this sort of structural growth opportunity within emerging markets. And then there's um, sort of the economic normalization, macroeconomic stabilization uh, parts that we need to see inflation come down, rates come down, uh, maybe growth uh, come back in some areas. And that's like Brazil. Um, it's also Mexico again, right? So Mexico gets the the double whammy of structural and probably benefiting from, say, a soft landing in the U.S. Um, and then, interestingly, parts of China. Right? So China gets is kind of split in half there. Um, and I think if you look at the world from that standpoint, you can start thinking about um, how to allocate capital, maybe in the first instance, for companies you want to hold through volatility, right? Uh, maybe looking for opportunities to buy them at sharp valuations. Um, and then the macro stabilization side, that second bit, um, looking for companies where they appear to be oversold, whether it's China or Brazil, um, and then looking for the sort of economic tailwinds to emerge uh, and, and create opportunities there. Okay. So at the minute, you are you are slightly underweight, China. We are. And um, I'm sorry if I'm making you repeat yourself. I feel like I've asked you this three times in three different previous conversations, but... What would fundamentally have to change? What's the catalyst for you changing that position? Yeah, I think um, up or down. <laughs> so um, I would say maybe I'll focus on the upside because I think we are we're underweight China, but less underweight than um, probably a lot of investors, frankly. Um, okay. And I think we are focused on the ultimate. You know improvement in the in the Chinese economy. So I guess what we're looking for in China, and that what I think um, they really drive that investment case is, of course, we've seen um, some signs over the last few months of improving macroeconomic fundamentals. That's good. But I think we also need to see earnings 
uh, and earnings estimates um, begin to bottom out. And we, we continue to see earnings uh, pretty soft through a lot of the Chinese economy. Um, and so um, if we can see um, you know, earnings downgrades, which continue to come through, end and maybe turn into earnings upgrades, that can be um, a, a real a real tailwind. That's probably what we're looking for um, the most. Um, our view is looking at earnings from a company from a bottom-up standpoint right now is that we might start to see that in whether it's Q4 or into Q1 of 2020, the first quarter of 2024. Um, it's hard to say, but I think we may be bottoming out on earnings downgrades, um, which would be a, a, a major tailwind for some of these um, very, very cheap com uh, uh, companies. Um, and then, you know, the other thing we really need to see is consumer confidence and consumer spending. And when you're looking at all the areas that you're over overweight, you know, um, be it, you know, region, sector, what kind of pockets of, of value are you seeing? You know, areas that are either very undergone a steep discount, areas that are not being looked at, but should be? What's kind of exciting you at the minute? Well, I think that, um, I guess, uh, a few things. One, I think that um, in, in, in China, just to, uh, to, to back that off, we are focused on uh, some of the very strong consumer-related industries, uh, consumer staples, consumer discretionary. In China, where we've seen pretty significant sell-offs um, and where the valuations are attractive, um, balanced with um, some of the more structural growth opportunities, um, healthcare, software, like I mentioned. So China for us, um, I, I think we've figured out that sort of um, balance between the two. Um, outside of that, we are overweight. We continue to be overweight in Mexico. Um, Mexico um, has benefited from its being a neighbor with the U.S. and the U.S. economy has been very strong. Um, and remittances from Mexican workers in the U.S. back to Mexico have, have supported consumption. Um, You're saying uh, that it's it's really it's it's really you know enjoying the kind of the riches of the reshoring of global supply chains. Well, I think what? that's a a significant long term trend in Mexico. I always worry because it's it's also a neat story, and sometimes that can create um, a bit of a theme, and then themes turn into bubbles. But I think it is also a real story. Um, and okay. when, we, when we speak to companies on the ground in Mexico, it's very clear that um, inbound investment has picked up. Um, we, we own a real estate company in Mexico um, who, uh, speaking to the CEO there, um, you know, was very clear that he's seeing more and more um, inquiries from uh, companies in the U.S., in Europe, even from China to put up uh, manufacturing facilities warehousing facilities, et cetera, into his properties. Um, so it's a very real trend that's occurring, for sure. Uh, it is, I think, long and, 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 and sustainable. Um, and so I think it does uh, help uh, support uh, the, the Mexican investment case. Um, also, Mexican equities are not terribly uh, uh, expensive. They, they've, they've done very well recently in the last 18 months or so, um, but still remain kind of um, within their long-term uh, uh, the trending uh, trading range um, uh, for Mexican equities, so we're not terribly concerned. And the peso uh, is um, a currency that is well supported, even in an environment where the uh, U.S. ten-year uh, and the U.S. rates are going up. Um, it's still a pretty attractive currency, given very high interest rates in Mexico and, and falling inflation. 
And before I let you go, I was just wondering, and I don't I don't know if this is a bit of a dud to leave things on, but I'm just kind of curious what the, in your view, is the the kind of the most common, maybe not misconception is the wrong word, but what is the most common misconception that you have to sort of firefight or what comes across your, your table about China? The big misconception we get is that the, the sort of dead hand of the government um, is all-knowing and all-powerful. Um, and um, that's definitely not the case for good and bad. Right? So the Chinese government, I don't think, has a great handle on how to jumpstart the economy or how to manage uh, the monetary or fiscal stimulus uh, in, in a way that it probably needs. Uh, and so that's that's a negative. But on the positive, um, there's a lot of great companies that are continuing to operate and the Chinese government didn't try to shut them down. There's no war on capitalism. Um, there's no sort of um, she trying to you know, have a great march backward, right? I think that um, the Chinese government recognizes that there is a place for private enterprise, um, maybe more than the headlines might suggest. Um, and, and I think for long-term investors, um, those fundamentals will play out um, in a way that you know, should create value and should allow us to find investment opportunities. I think that's a good note to leave things on. Derek Irwin, thank you very much. And I hope to have you guys soon. It was a pleasure. Thank you.